Scientists at NASA have developed a gun for the purpose of launching dead chickens. It is used to shoot a dead chicken at the windshield of airline jets, military jets, or the space shuttle at the vehicle's maximum traveling velocity. Velocity. The idea being that it would simulate the frequent incidences of collisions with airborne fowl and therefore determine if the windshields are strong enough to endure high-speed bird strikes. British engineers, upon hearing of the gun, were eager to test it on the windshields of their new high-speed trains. However, upon firing the gun, the engineers watched in shock as the chicken shattered the windshield, smashed through the control console, snapped the engineer's backrest in two, and embedded itself in the back wall of the cabin. Horrified and puzzled, the engineers sent NASA the results of the experiment along with the designs of the windshield and asked the NASA scientists for any suggestions. The, scientists, the NASA scientists sent back a brief response, thaw the chicken. <laughs> there are times when it may be necessary to repeat the obvious which is what those obviously British scientists missed. They missed the obvious. Fowls that fly into airplanes are usually not frozen solid. <laughs> there are times when it's important to repeat the obvious, and that is something that we are learning in Ephesians. Throughout Ephesians, chapter 1, Paul repeatedly references the gospel. Chosen, destined, redeemed by his blood, adopted. He moves on to chapter 2 and then he again repeats the obvious. Made alive, saved by grace, brought near by the blood of Christ. On and on again, Paul just repeats the gospel. He keeps reminding these dear Ephesians of the gospel. And then yet again, in chapter 3, which is where we start this morning, he retells the gospel all over again. He restates the obvious. And he doesn't want the Ephesians to miss the obvious, and specifically in this passage, the importance of the gospel. And the importance of the gospel in related to suffering. Read with me in chapter 3. And we'll read through verse 13. Paul writes, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly, when you read this you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ 
and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Father, I pray this morning that you would, you would help your church. Lord, I pray that you would shepherd your church through the truth of your word. That every man and woman here this morning would experience your presence, would encounter Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would do that by your spirit. Lord, I pray you'd help me. Help me to speak on this deep, rich, wonderful passage. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the challenges that I am experiencing in preaching through these first three chapters of Ephesians is that it's basically indicative. It's, there, it's not imperatives. It's not commands. It's indicatives. It's all that God has done, all that, that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul just continues to state and restate the obvious, to tell and retell the gospel, because it, it's, it, it's, he wants to let us know all that God has done. So it's an indicative. And the, the problem with indicatives is that there's, in, in a sense, there's, there's nothing that Paul just says, and go do this, which is always easier to preach. Go do this. Don't do that. Imperatives just make it a bit easier. Indicatives are a little bit harder. But indicatives are what we build on. Indicatives are, are really the lifeblood of what we do. Without the indicatives, without Paul telling us what God has done for us, if he just moved on to telling us what we should be doing, there would be no life to it. There would be no grace to it. There'd be no hope to it. Now, this, this passage, it's the, actually the beginning of a prayer. Paul starts, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he, he, he pauses for a moment. And that prayer actually begins in verse 14. He, he continues that prayer after his pause where he goes into a number of things. And you can see in verse 14, he starts all over again, for this reason I bow my knees. And so in a few weeks after, after I get back from Korea and after Easter, we'll, we'll jump into verse 14 and, and on down. We'll be able to see Paul's prayer, but, but not this morning. We want to we concentrate on Paul's interruption that he has here. And he begins with saying, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Why is Paul calling himself a prisoner? Well, it's one of his prison epistles. He's, he's in a Roman prison as he writes this. And custom has it that he was chained 
between two Roman soldiers. How he could ever write an epistle, I don't know, chained between two Roman soldiers. But somehow he found a way to do it. And we learn about that in, in Acts chapter 21. And turn there, if you would, to Acts 21. And in verse 27, we see Paul's imprisonment. Twenty-one, twenty-seven. Sorry. When the seven days were almost completed, Paul had gone up to Jerusalem and he had been told that it was necessary for him to purify himself because he had been with the Gentiles and the Jews from Asia seeing him in the temple. So he had, he had been through the purification. He's back in the temple now. And so when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia. So these are Jews that were from the, the, the Ephesian area, the Ephesus area. They were from Asia. They, they had seen Paul in Ephesus. The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law and this place. So they're accusing Paul of, of teaching against Jewish law. For they had previously, and then he goes, moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now we talked about that last week, that, that any Gentile going into God's temple, going into the Jewish temple, was worthy of death. And that the dividing wall that separated Jew from Gentile was a literal dividing wall. So you had the law of Moses that divided the Gentile from Jew. You also have the physical dividing wall around the temple itself where Jews could not enter. And Paul is being accused of bringing a, a Gentile named Trophimus into the temple. And that's what these Jews are saying, which actually wasn't true. For they had previously in Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. I mean, that, that little phrase, at once the gates were shut, dragging him out of the temple. In a sense, they're, they're calling Paul a Gentile. They're treating him as they would a Gentile. They're closing the door on him. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Talking about one on one side and one on the other. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some in another. And as, he, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when they came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was brought, about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? 
Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? I mean, just think of the rumor. I mean, Paul, oh, you must be the Egyptian who had 4,000 assassins and you were killing people all over the place. Maybe you're that guy. It's amazing how rumors just get started. That's a whole other message. (laughs) Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you. Now listen, he's been beaten, he's been dragged, he's been accused, he's been slandered, he's been gossiped about, and this is what he says. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Here's a man who, who knew what God had, had done for him and wanted, knew what God wanted to do in him. So Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, and then he began to share his, his testimony with him. He shares about his Damascus Road experience. He shares about what Christ had done in his life. He shares the gospel with them. And then, in, verse, in chapter 22, you work, look down at verse 19. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed... I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, speaking of Jesus, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So he shares his testimony and then he tells them, listen, God told me to go to the Gentiles. He's telling this to a rabid Jewish crowd who wants him killed. And when he tells them that God had said, God tells him to go to the Gentiles. Look at verse 22. Up to this word, they'd listen to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with this fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. And that's when the, the, the tribune takes him into the barracks. They're about to flog him. And he appeals to Caesar as a Roman citizen, and the tribune is obviously shocked because if he had flogged a Roman citizen, it would have been worse for him. And so they end up sending Paul to Rome. And he ends up in a Roman prison. Humanly speaking, Paul is a prisoner of Rome. He's a prisoner of Nero, the emperor. But in Paul's mind, he's not. Look at verse 1, Ephesians 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ. Paul sees himself as a slave of Christ, a prisoner for Christ. And I think as we understand why Paul calls himself a prisoner for Christ, it will help us understand how he endures suffering in a Roman prison, how he endures beatings how he endures being dragged, how he endures having his name slandered, how he endures suffering. And we'll understand why he interrupts this prayer with this passage. Now, his interruption can be a bit confusing. He starts out, for this reason, I, Paul, a 
prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then all of a sudden he just goes off. He just he goes off, assuming, and he, like, you're supposed to assume this. And, and I mean, it, this diversion is, is a bit perplexing. It's confusing. I, I, I remember there were times when my kids were younger. I would sit down with them and I would try to explain to them why they needed to be faithful to, to keep their room clean, to be diligent, you know, to, to obey dad and mom. And, you know, they would look at me and, and I remember, you know, six, seven-year-old, they'd just say, yes, daddy. And, and I'm thinking I'm getting through. And then they'd look up and just, daddy, do you know bears don't eat dandelions? It's like, how did we get here? <laughs> That's what it seems like with Paul. I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Hey, bears don't eat dandelions. I mean, that's just... It, and Paul would have been a horrible mystery writer. His writing style is terrible. You think throughout, throughout the, the scriptures, the epistles, you see this interrupted nature of Paul time and again. He would have been a terrible mystery writer. Can you imagine... Paul writing uh, a mystery one day. A shadowy figure moved from behind a door, raised his hand with a knife, and there was Christmas music in the background, and people were shopping. And it's like, wait a minute, what? You know, and, and that's what he does here. But why does he do this? Why does Paul interrupt? Why does he move from this? And you have to understand, I mean, these. Gentiles, these Ephesians knew what Paul had, had gone through in Jerusalem. So when he talks about being a prisoner on their behalf, it touches their hearts. They know Paul's in a Roman prison because he came and preached to them. They know he's suffering on behalf of them. And yet Paul interrupts that thought. He just draws their attention away. Why does he do that? Well, the answer is in verse 13. Look at verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul has a pastor's heart. And he wants to keep these Ephesians from stumbling. He spent three years among them. He loved them. And they loved him. If you remember when he was leaving and he was with the Ephesian elders, they had come to him at Miletus and, and they were weeping over him as he was leaving. That's their heart towards Paul. And so Paul, in the same way, has a heart towards them. He, he knows that, their, that his suffering and his imprisonment is causing consternation, is causing pain for his friends in the Ephesian church. So he, so he writes to them that they would know how to respond to his suffering. He doesn't want them to miss the obvious. He doesn't want them to lose heart. And so he protects them by once again retelling them the story of the gospel. And specifically, he retells them his story. And he does it in a most creative way. He does, them, he does it by telling the gospel story. He talks about mystery and unsearchable riches. And he talks about, ultimately, the grace of God. Look at verse 
2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Here's here's the gospel's beginning in your life and mine. God's, God's grace was given to me as a stewardship. And it was given to me as a stewardship on your behalf. I was given the gospel for you. That's why I'm in prison, but that's okay. Because God saved me. I first received the grace of the gospel. And now I have this stewardship given to me for you. The gospel has changed my life. It's changed your life. It's okay I'm in prison. That's God's grace given. But look over verses 3 through verse 5. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. He, he's saying, listen, God's grace was not only given to me, God's grace was revealed to me. The mystery was revealed to me. The mystery of the gospel. The mystery of Christ. A mystery that I was blind to. A mystery that was revealed to me in an unbelievable experience on a road riding on a horse when a light knocks me off my horse. You remember my testimony, you Ephesians. You remember how God took me into the desert and for three years revealed to me who he was in the mystery of Christ. And that is the mystery that I revealed to you. I'm in prison because I was given a mystery that's no longer a mystery. Yes, the things revealed belong to God but God reveals things to us. And here's the mystery of the gospel. It's the gospel, God's grace revealed. God's grace just not only given, but it's revealed. And then look in verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Here's God's grace expressed. Oh, Gentiles, listen, I, I'm in prison, that's okay. I'm suffering, that's okay. It's because, it's because it's for you and because I was able to tell you. And here's what it was all about. Here is what I mentioned in, in chapter 1, verse 10, where as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Here is the fullness of God's plan revealed. This mystery expressed is that the Gentiles, you, you Ephesians, are heirs, fellow heirs with me, a Jew, And with the the Jews throughout the world, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There is grace expressed. And look at verse 8. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. 
His grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit perplexed why he keeps calling them the Gentiles. I mean, I, I think he does it for a reason. He's just hammering them with who they were apart from Christ, without hope and without God in the world, as he said earlier in chapter 2. He doesn't say, you friends or you Ephesians. He says, you Gentiles. And it's not derogatory. It's, it's the obvious. This is who you were. That was to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So there we see God's grace defined. The unsearchable riches of Christ, light for everyone, the plan hidden for the ages, the mystery revealed. And then in verse 10, he goes on, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. There's God's grace glorified. It's the gospel. That the plan of God's mystery, the angels did not know. That the angels are learning about God's mysterious, mysterious plan, this mystery, through the church. That God did not reveal it to the angels. He reveals it through us. And that God is glorified in that. And then in verse 11, we see God's grace explained. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's eternal purpose, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. God's eternal purpose, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the return of Christ, all things united in him, that is the eternal purpose. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. And that is what Paul reminds them of. Paul repeats the obvious. He reviews all that he had been telling them in chapters 1 and chapter 2. Why? Why keep repeating the obvious? Well, I mean, I can tell you, for one, we easily forget. We, we easily forget. How many of you remember my proposition statement from last week? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no worries. I understand. I mean, unless it's like one of the most world's pithy statements, you're probably going to forget it by the time you start eating lunch. We, we easily forget. Oftentimes, sadly, folks remember an illustration more than they remember a message. We easily forget. And Paul's aware of that. In fact, if you remember, in, in last week, Paul says, therefore, remember. And then in verse 12, he goes, remember. He, twice in the, he talks about remembering. And so the first thing is that, that we need to remember. But secondly, and I think more importantly, the focus of this verse is that Paul wants us to master the gospel 
because we suffer. And it's what we need when we suffer. That's what was making him That's what was making him strong in the midst of a Roman prison and all that suffering. And so here's my, here's my prop statement to you this morning. And I won't ask you what it is next week because I won't be here. Main point, my main proposition. Mastering the gospel helps us remain secure in Christ and near to Christ when we suffer. Mastering the gospel helps us remain secure in Christ and near to Christ when we suffer. And that's the, that's the point, I think, of Paul's section here, why he interrupts, because he wants them to experience God's grace. That's the point of Paul retelling this gospel story. He wants them to master the gospel. He wants them to remember the gospel. What is, what is a mastery of the gospel? Simply defined, it's returning to the fundamentals of the gospel every day. It's not forgetting the gospel. How often I forget the gospel. And I don't mean I'm walking around repeating the gospel to myself all the time. That's, that's not what I mean by mastery. But I experience life the same way you do every day and there are there are things that that in, invade my life whether it, it's it's discouragement at times or it's sin at times or it's joy at times where does the gospel fit in those moments is it real and so paul wants us to master the Returning to the fundamentals of the gospel every day. You've heard so often about the gospel and it's easy to become anesthetized to gospel. Gospel. Yeah, 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 I've heard it. Gospel. Gospel. Christ died for my sins. Gospel. Christ died for my sins. Gospel. I've got it. But it's more than that. You know, when I was coaching high school basketball... One of the, I actually, I, I enjoyed preseason as much as I enjoyed the regular season. The reason I loved preseason was it, we began again, and I remember October, uh, November 1st was our, was our beginning date. You were allowed to practice November 1st, and I loved it because no matter who they were, whether it was a senior or a freshman, day one was fundamentals. Day one was fundamentals. You taught the same thing every year on day one and day two and day three. And every day you practice, you returned to the fundamentals. That's what I did when I was coaching. And sometimes the seniors would be like, you know, I've been here. I've done this. I've learned this. Why do we have to go through it again? Because you didn't do it well last year and you're going to learn to do it well this year. You, you go back to the fundamentals. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's going back. And so mastering, mastering the gospel helps me to make sense of life. It helps me to make sense in my struggle with sin. When I'm impatient or when I'm selfish or I'm lazy or I feel stupid and condemns, uh, condemned about my failings. When I'm trying to pray and I'm reminded that I shouldn't be surprised by my failings. But I should rest that Jesus has covered my sins centuries ago on a cross. Mastering the gospel helps me make sense out of life in my struggle with suffering, when I'm in pain with a migraine or my knee is hurting. 
It helps me make sense out of my life and my struggle with doubt. When I'm fearful about anything in the gospel, the gospel tells me that Jesus, Jesus dwells in me and is with me. It helps me make sense out of life in my struggles with weakness when I'm simply weary of this world. And there are days that we all experience that. And the gospel tells me it's okay to be weary because my Savior was weary too. Paul is endeavoring to strengthen these Ephesian Christians by reminding them that the gospel is where they find grace. Nowhere else. The gospel. Mastering the gospel helps us remain secure in Christ and near to Christ when we suffer. And so two principles this morning. Very short, but two principles. Number one, truth is practical. Principle number one, Paul wants us to know, is truth is practical. All Christian doctrine is meant to lead and is designed to lead to a practical result and outcome. Paul is giving Christian doctrine. That's what chapter 1 is all about. That's what chapter 2 is all about. That's what chapter 3 is all about. And that's what this section is all about. That's what that interruption from verse 2 through verse 13 is about. It's doctrine. It's teaching. It's the gospel. It's truth. And Paul wants us to have this embedded in our hearts. So truth is practical. In other words, it's great to know this. It's great to say, yeah, Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the birth. It's the life. It's the death. It's the resurrection. It's the mystery of God's plan revealed that the unsearchable riches of Christ are mine and that I have been saved by grace through faith. Those, those are wonderful truths. But, but where is it practical? In other words, where is it lived out? How does it make its way into your life as you get up in the morning and go to work, do the things you do in the household, be with your family? How does it make itself practical? Well, Truth is practical. And Paul, Paul says it here. Look at verse 12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Of all the blessings of Christian salvation, I would contend in this life, I think none is greater than having access to God through prayer. I would contend none is greater than having access to God through prayer. That I, Larry Malament, a vile, sinful, wicked man who 40 years ago actually drove by this very building being a vile, wicked sinner not knowing Christ could stand before the throne of God. I can't go to the White House, knock on the gate, and say, yo, Obama, I'm here. (laughs) Please, just take a moment. 
This is a mystery. This, this is the mystery. Four times Paul uses the word mystery. This is the greatest mystery of all. How can we stand in the presence of the creator of the universe? God is not the force. He is a person. We have access to God in prayer. Doctrine has a purpose. That's what Paul is doing here. The purpose of Paul giving us a doctrinal explanation, a teaching on the gospel is to bring us to God. That we would have the idea practically that I, in whom, in Christ, in whom we have boldness and we have access and we have confidence through faith in him that we can be with him. That we can spend time with God. And he loves it. When I was, when my kids were little, one of the one of the joys I had, I would go downstairs and early in the morning, we had a big chair and I'd sit in the chair and I'd have my quiet time. And inevitably, one of the young ones would get up in the morning and I'd hear them padding down the stairs and they'd come in and they'd just sit in my lap while I'm having my devotions. Not once did I ever say, get out of here, I'm spending time with God. I mean, the joy I had just cuddling with my children in that moment. Think about the joy God, God has with you. Paul gives us doctrine. Lloyd-Jones says this, Doctrine, I repeat, is meant to be practical and is meant to lead to a great richness in the Christian life. But it is equally important to say that your Christian life will never be rich unless you know and apprehend doctrine. So the real purpose of all that the Apostle has been reminding these Ephesians, that they who had been Gentiles and aliens and strangers from the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world, have now by his glorious gospel that he had preached to them, made fellow heirs with the saints, partakers of the promise, The real purpose is that they should rejoice in it because it is by the means of the gospel that they have boldness and access with confidence into the presence of God. Truth is practical, which means to Paul, we pray because the gospel has brought us near to God and we can go near to God. Even when you've sinned today, the gospel has made access for you to go into the presence of God now. At this moment. You know, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know that. God doesn't say, okay, stay outside, confess your sin, and then you can have access to me. We have access to him because we are clothed in Christ's robes of righteousness. We can be with him now. When you sin, if you feel condemned or discouraged, that is the enemy accusing. And God is saying, you have faith in me? Come boldly. Come. You have access. Come with confidence into my presence. Paul tells us we can pray because we have the gospel. 
We can pray with that boldness and with that access and with that confidence. Principle number one, truth is practical. It means that we can pray and we should pray. Secondly, principle number two, God is faithful. The gospel helps us remain secure in Christ. Not just helps us bring us near to Christ, but it helps us remain secure in Christ. Look what Paul says in verse 12. In whom and in him. Our series, in him and for him. What Ephesians is all about. It's about being in Christ and it's about living for Christ. And here, Paul says that we can remain secure because we are in Him by faith. You are in Christ. And when you are in Christ, you will never be out of Christ. There will not be a day or a moment that you will be separated from the love of God. Simply put, our, our boldness, our access, our confidence is because we're in Him. Paul says it twice in this verse, in whom and in him. He is repeating that that we can have faith in the face of suffering. We can endure. We can go to God in prayer. We can experience the grace of the gospel even when we suffer as he is saying, I am suffering. Paul is writing this about himself. Do you get that? That's what Paul's writing about. He's giving a model, an example to the Ephesians. I'm in prison. I've been beaten. I'm in chains. I am suffering. My life is coming to an end fairly soon. So what? I'm a prisoner for Christ. I'm a slave of Christ. And I have... I I can do this not because I am some superhuman. I can do this... I can do this because I have access to God. I can be bold with God. I can pray to God with confidence. Why? Because of the gospel. Because I've been saved. I was given a stewardship of grace that first came to me. I know there are times when entering God's presence is not easy. I know when I am discouraged about my failings, it's just harder. It's just harder to, to just like, God, can I come again? Are you going to forgive me again? Are you really going to let this one go? God, if I were you, I'd punish me. In fact, why don't I punish myself for a while? Maybe that'll make me more acceptable to you. And God says, no, that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. You know, it doesn't take a moment for my conscience to kick in and remind me of who I am. And it doesn't take but a moment for the devil to accuse me of who I am. But Paul's remedy to everything is the gospel. Application. How do I make this practical in my life? Well, let me read another quote. It's a long quote, but it's, it's one of the richest quotes I've read in a long, long time by Martin, my D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I am more than ever convinced that the trouble with many Christian people is that they do not preach to themselves. We should spend time every day preaching to ourselves and never more so than when we get on our knees in prayer. 
By preaching to yourself, I mean that when you're on your knees and all those thoughts and doubts and uncertainties come crowding in upon you and your sins rise up against you and you feel you have no right to pray at all and that you are almost a cad in doing so, I say you must first realize where they come from and then begin to remind yourself of the central truths of the Christian faith. You must remind yourself of the great doctrine which we have been considering together. You say, of course I am a sinner. When the devil told me I was a sinner, he was quite right. He said it to discourage me, but I'm going to use it to help myself. Of course I am a sinner. God is holy and I am vile. And I do not realize even yet how vile I am. Well then, how can I pray? How can I go into the presence of God? The answer is, that God himself has opened the way for me. He has provided it. He has sent his only son into this world to bear my sins, to die for me. Christ has kept the law for me and has put down his own perfect robe of righteousness upon me. With this on me, I can go into the presence of God. Having convinced yourself of that, you gain confidence and begin to pray. Although I am a sinner and though I feel nothing, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I know I can never fit myself into, to go into the presence of God, but I believe this record in the Scripture. I therefore believe, whatever I may feel or not feel, that Christ, the Son of God, has died for me and my sins. And therefore, I have as much right to go into the presence of God as the greatest saint. For this reason, Paul says, I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And I ask you, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. You know, there's a subtlety in Paul's writing, even though he can be a bit weird in his transitions. And the subtlety is this, when Paul says, I do not want you to lose heart over his suffering, he also wants you not to lose heart over your own suffering. He wants you to persevere. Because, as he says in this verse, we're in whom and in him. We're secure in Christ. We're secure in Christ. And God, God has just opened up with great access to us. Come. Come to me boldly. Come to me with confidence. Thank God for his love for you. Praise him that he's given you life, that you are no longer dead in your trespasses and sins, but you are made alive together with Jesus Christ. Thank him for his mercy and compassion. Thank him for dying for you. Thank him for sending the Holy Spirit. Yes, Paul's imprisonment was physically painful. It was suffering. It was anguish. But as you read in Philippians 2 and Philippians 3 and Philippians 4, Paul repeatedly says, I rejoice. I rejoice. I believe this is what both Paul, the pastor, and me, your pastor, desire most for you. That you can rejoice, that you can remain secure in Christ, and that you can boldly with confidence go into God's presence wherever and whenever. Because he loves you so.